Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. Well, thanks again for joining a new episode of the Foundation Podcast. We are privileged to have with us Jonah Goldberg, Senior Editor of the National Review, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and you have probably seen him on Fox News as well. I would also like to describe him, and I mean this seriously, as one of the great articulate voices of the conservative movement. So oh, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. The compliments make me feel very uncomfortable, but I'll take it. I I'll, appreciate that, it. That'll be the last one I'll mention then. That, fair that, enough. I appreciate that. After it all, it is Texas, so we'll just cut straight to the heart of the matter. I'd I, I rather that. Thank you. Yes, you bet. Well, really, thanks for being here. It is important what you have to say today. And most of what we'll talk about comes from Jonah's new book, Suicide of the West, just out over the last couple of weeks. If you've not picked up a copy, I highly encourage you to do so. And I really mean that because, you know, one of our objectives here with the Foundation podcast is to take a step back from public policy, to take a step back even from our specific surroundings of Texas, and think about those ideas, those philosophical foundations of the conservative and free market movement. And today we're going to be able to do that rather easily because this new book by Jonah Goldberg, Suicide of the West, provides an excellent analysis and synthesis of where we have been and maybe even where we're going. So, Jonah, I know that having read your work over the years, that there are a lot of themes in this new book, Suicide of the West, that will be familiar to readers of your work. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's great. What's interesting to me is that you weave together a little bit of commentary about current events a very deep understanding of history, a very deep understanding of political philosophy, wonderful breadth and sociology into a highly readable book that also is important. And I know that there had to be some moment when, even though these ideas had been percolating in your mind for some time, you said, I'm writing this book for this reason. Yeah. What was the rationale? Well, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's less of a eureka moment aha here's this book right because one of the things that um charles murray gave me this advice when i was working on my first book um he said look if you go into this and you start writing this book the right way uh, if you don't change your mind about a half dozen core things that you thought were true when you went into it you're doing it wrong because what you're doing if you if you have if you don't change your mind when you actually do the reading and do the research it means you're setting out to do propaganda rather than actually produce something. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to call myself a scholar, but something scholarly, right? And uh, But I have to say that one of the things that uh, really made me want to write the book or explore writing the book was the publication of, of uh, Thomas Piketty's book, uh, Capital, which was sort of an updating of, you know, it was an explicit reference to Karl Marx's book, Das Capital, and um, and in fact, the original proposal for this book, the t for my book, the title was going to be called Wealth, as a sort of response to Capital, and uh, and that sort of thinking about all of that put me down a certain path about how to think about these things. But then the thesis kind of broadened out, and I kind of wandered around like Joe Biden in his pajamas <laughs> into different what kinds of images. places, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, but. 
you know, one of the things that I, I had become really, really interested in um, at AI, in part because of Arthur Brooks, is this idea that I sort of harp on a lot on my own podcast and on and on college campuses is, is the idea that complexity is a subsidy. Um, the more complex you make society, the more rules and regulations and red tape and all the rest that you start cluttering up society with, um, the more you're rewarding people who have either the social capital, friends, family connections, um, you know, a network, all that kind of stuff, um, or the intellectual capital or the financial capital to navigate those things. If you've got access to great lawyers, you don't care about all the rules. But if you're some guy who's just trying to make it an upstart business, a person just trying to find their place in the world, those rules serve as a kind of moat that keep people down. And this whole idea of sort of simple rules for a complex society was one of these things that I just started exploring and got me thinking about a lot of the themes in the book. Mm -hmm. Why the title? Well, um, part of it was a sort of negotiated thing with the, with the publisher. I, I know as this, it goes. this is going to scandalize some listeners that uh, sometimes one thinks about how to market a book when coming up with the title of a book. And um, wealth really didn't work anymore once I started working it up. And for a long time, the working title of the book, and if you look on my computer, you'll see all the early drafts, the, the idea was the tribe of liberty. And because what I was trying to... Part of the argument of the book itself is that our conceptions of freedom, of limited government, these sort of foundation things that you're talking about, they actually don't start as these glorious, you know, platonic ideas. They start as these really weird, quirky things about English culture um, that are unique, that were unique to English culture and sort of accidental. And what the founding fathers who considered themselves to be Englishmen first and foremost, right? And it took a long time for them to decide to declare independence. Um, what they were doing were, were was, was they were outraged that what they considered to be their what they would call their ancient rights and liberties that Englishmen were entitled to as a matter of custom, unwritten constitutional law, just sort of what the English were about, were being violated in America. And that process caused them to sort of really think through those ideas, those cultural norms, and uh, sort of purify them and write them down. And so I wanted to call it the tribe of liberty because one of the things I think we need to do more of in this culture is have a certain amount of sort of like tribalistic or nationalistic pride in how quirky and weird American culture is, our, our commitment to freedom. One of the things that drives me crazy about the way we talk about American exceptionalism is that now people think that means Oh, we're saying we're better than everybody. That's never what American exceptionalism meant. American exceptionalism meant we were exceptional, that we were different than everybody else, because we are. And that came with good things and bad things. And you know, one of the bad things is that America was always a more violent country than almost any place else, at least modern countries. And, um, and it came with these sort of quirky attitudes about the government, about individual liberty. Alexis de Tocqueville described um, the American as the Englishman left alone, right? And so, that, just to finish, the reason why we sort of came on suicide of the West is that, um, it's, I know it's a gloomy sounding title, but I didn't call it the end of the West or the death of the West or the decline of the West. I called it suicide of the West in part because suicide's a choice. And what I'm trying to do is sort of explain, if you had a friend who was suicidal, what would you do? You would say to him, you would tell him all the things he has to live for. 
You would tell him not to give in to his worst instincts, not to despair. You would tell him about how many people need him and how important he is or she is. And that's sort of how I closed the book about explaining how we need to sort of turn our back on this because we are choosing as a civilization, as a culture, um, to embrace ideas that could lead to the undoing of this miraculous thing that we've got. It is, and it, it, it is miraculous. Some people might use the word providential. Sure. And which I, I, I doubt you disagree with. And, and yet, especially early in your book, you, you talk about the book not being about God right. or about the society being providential. And why don't you tease that out for our sure. listeners? Yeah. So first of all, spoiler alert, God sneaks back in at the end. But um, I was going to let you do the spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> so the, actually, one of my daughter's favorite books when she was little was called uh, There is a Monster at the End of This Book. And it's Grover begging the reader not to turn the page because you're getting closer and closer to the monster at the end of the book. And then it turns out the monster's Grover. Um, and I was kind of like trying to think about how I could have like God say surprise yes. at the end. Wonderful literary. <laughs> but uh, um, it was either that or Dostoevsky. So um, good choice. Uh, yeah. So the reason why I say that the first sentence of the book is there is no God in this book. And what I mean by that isn't that I'm an atheist. I'm not an atheist. What I mean is that um, for the purposes of the argument I want to make, I'm not going to rely on any appeals to the divine. I'm not going to say that God created America. I'm not going to say that um, this is all part of God's plan. I'm working from these sort of secular, you know, modern progressive assumptions about the world that we live in, that, that evolution is true, that we are descendants of animals, and those animals are descendants of even more embarrassing animals, and, um, and that, uh, and so part of that argument also implies that there's no such thing as the right side of history that there is no uh, teleology. There's no um, thing that said that the way history happened had to happen, right? And so part of my argument is that, that liberal democratic capitalism, what I call this, the miracle, um, it kind of happened by accident. And we can talk about that if you want. Um, but it, if it was, the, and the miracle relies on things like property rights, individual liberty, limited government, the idea that we're citizens, not subjects, that the government belongs to us. And if those ideas were natural, they would have showed up a little earlier in the evolutionary record. And, um, and so part of my point is, is that since we kind of stumbled into these things, and this is the only thing that has ever created sustained wealth and prosperity for poor people and the average person in all of human history, that maybe we should have some gratitude for it. And... Um, I do think that one of the reasons why we have the problems that we have today, since you brought up God, who I'm a fan of, by the way, um, is that, uh, you know, one of the things that the Founding Fathers really understood was that you can't have a, the, the society that they were designing, the system they were designing, depended enormously on individual virtue, on the assumption that, that the, the citizens themselves would have a certain minimal amount of moral restraint a certain amount of understanding of the, about how to conduct themselves. And I think that one of the things that has created some of the problems that we have, or is a source of a lot of the problems that we have, is the receding of the idea of being God-fearing. You know, Adam Smith, he doesn't talk about God-fearing. He talks about the impartial observer that, um, or the impartial spectator. And for, for Adam Smith, it's this idea of that we try to organize or edit our behavior as if we thought that somebody was watching us. But God-fearing is better because, you know, it's sort of a hallmark card kind of point, but 
a really good definition of good character is the things that you do when no one else is watching. And if you happen to think that there's this omniscient force, you know, outside of you that is judging you by an external standard of decent conduct, um, it's going to govern how you do things a bit more. What we now have, for a lot, to a large extent, is people being told, just go with your gut, go with your feelings. The only often, you, know, you only have to be true to yourself, right? Um, and that even gets down to the issues of like, what, what is truth? It's like, it's true if you believe it, if it's true for you know, personal truth. And I think that that indulgence of what historically is understood as romanticism um, is a pernicious influence on, on American life and democracy. And it manifests itself in different ways on both the right and the left. Sure. And I think that's one of the, the values of, of your book is, is offering constructive critiques of both the left and the right. People might expect your analysis to come from a particular view, which of course it does, but I think you're very fair, especially speaking as a historian of America myself, in calling a spade a spade about the limitations of each ideology. And there, there's a lot to tease out in your response just now, but, but I think what may make the most sense to discuss next for our listeners is that there's one way to describe the or explain the problems that you identify in the book. And that would be taking, as you said, a perspective of, of godlessness by civilization. And there's a lot to be said for that. We'll put that off to the side, not because it's unimportant, but because that's not the story we're telling today. And, and there's another thing that we're missing, which I think you, you emphasize very well, and that is this understanding as Americans of our cultural inheritance. Right. The historian Russell Kirk would, would refer to this as the five cities approach, that what happened in Philadelphia in 1776 merely continued what happened in, in England in 1215, which continued in a certain way what happened in Rome right. and what happened in Athens and in originally Jerusalem. Right. And as Americans, we have really no longer understand that what we're doing is exceptional. It's mm -hmm. different, not better or worse, it's right. exceptional. But it's also a continuation of things that really, uh, of trends that have happened throughout history that did manifest themselves in a unique way in America. That's and right. we simply have untethered ourselves in the 21st century from that understanding. And, we're, and we've taught ourselves that, there, that the past has nothing to teach us, right? And certainly offers nothing to be proud of. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, no, look, I agree. Look, uh, this, this is great, probably apocryphal story that Chow Wen Lai, who was the premier of China in the early 70s, was asked what he thought about the French Revolution. And he said, ah, it's too soon to tell, um, right? So you can go way back if you want to go way back. Sure. You know, what happened, so, and I, and I get into this in the book, is that, you know, originally in pantheistic societies, gods really were our servants, right? Each city had its own god that you prayed to the god of war to deliver you victory. You played the god of fertility, the god of love, the god of this, and all that kind of stuff. And then along come the Jews, and they say, no, 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 no. We work for God. God doesn't work for us, and there's only one of him. Right. And he's watching. And and every so for, for the Jews or the Hebrews. Right. It's it's every all the members of the tribe, every individual Jew has a um, moral self-worth, a human dignity, including women. Right. That's where we, we first get the ideas of sort of sexual morality it starts with the Jews. I mean, again, there are, everybody has their own sexual moralities, but the sort of tradition that we inherit and. Then comes Christianity, which basically takes the form of these, the, the, the architecture of Jewish understanding of morality and universalizes it. And so the Christian says that um, uh, all humans 
are deserve, have innate worth. They're all children of God. They all deserve dignity. The whole idea of the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for the first time really takes us out of this sort of tribal mindset that says my team is great and I will protect my team, but I don't care about your team. Um, and that idea again gets picked up and expanded upon by St. Augustine, who has the city of man and the city of God, where Christianity starts to create, as, as Jesus said, you know, this idea of rendering under Caesar what is Caesar's rendering under God what is God's, creates the social space for people to disagree with each other, the right to be wrong. And it goes up through, you know, the Treaty of Westphalia, and you got, I mean, you can tease all these things out. The cultural heritage that I sort of find fascinating and sort of a big part of the thesis of the book is the one that we inherit from the English. You know, you mentioned the Magna Carta with 1215, right? So the Magna Carta, or as the British say, Magna Carta, no the, um, is a pretty grubby document when you actually read it, right? It is this negotiated um, truce between competing lords and the king. And there's all sorts of weird stuff in it, right? But it created a sort of precedent. And because it was written down, um, it gave it a sort of sacred status because back then writing was this incredibly new, important, vital thing. And, and so a lot of the cultural norms of the English have to do with just weird things about the English. And one of the examples I often give is you know, the concept of a man's home is his castle, which was part of sort of English custom going back to like the fourth century. It's this idea that even the king couldn't walk into your home without good reason. And that evolved under the common law, under Blackstone, and then eventually came to the United States as a cultural norm that became the Fourth Amendment. A better example of this would be John Locke's uh, Notes on Toleration, right? So, and, and under Locke, he has this great, really radical, revolutionary idea of showing tolerance to religious minorities. You know, the, the Calvinists and the Puritans and all of these kinds of people, that they, they deserve some social space, even if they disagree with the theology of the king. But let's not go crazy. Not the Catholics, right? That would and, just be way too radical. Yeah, that, we can't have the Catholics. Because they're, they're, they're in liege with a foreign prince and all this kind of stuff. But the internal logic of Locke's argument gets carried across the ocean, and Jefferson picks it up. And like so many of these other quirky... Um, both intellectual and also cultural things in English culture, the founding fathers put it in a centrifuge and kind of purified it. And so Jefferson takes the form of Locke's argument, but he extends it not only to Catholics, but to Hindus and Jews and pagans and even atheists. And he says everybody deserves toleration in this sort of the city of man that we are creating here in North America. And the same sort of story can be told about about slavery, yeah, the founding fathers were incredible hypocrites for uh, countenancing slavery or not giving rights to women or only giving rights to rich landowners and all that. That's fine. But the glorious thing about hypocrisy is that it illuminates a principle. And this internal logic that the founding fathers set forth gets picked up by Abraham Lincoln, right? So that when the Declaration of Independence is written, no one thought the, the first paragraph was the interesting part. Everyone thought the end was the interesting part because that's where they declare independence. It took Abraham Lincoln and this argument that percolated up for 70 years um, to reimagine what the founding was entirely about, which was this idea that we are all endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights and um, that it's self-evident and, um, uh, and that all men are created equal. Lincoln takes that and, and says this is not just sort of 
boilerplate. This is the heart of what this country is. And 100 years after that, Martin Luther King takes that argument and says to white America, such as it was, right, and says, look, the story you tell yourselves about yourself is this story about how all men are created equal and that you believe in inalienable rights and liberty. You're not living up to your deal. He says, the Founding Fathers wrote a promissory note, and I've come here to collect it. And it is one of the most important speeches, documents, moments in American history, because what King was doing was he was asking Americans not to reject their ideals, but to live up to them. And now the problem we get with the left and with a lot of people coming up on the right is to say the ideals themselves no longer work. And that is the suicidal choice of turning our back on this unfolding um, war to improve ourselves by living up to our best selves that people now want to turn around, turn around on and say, no, 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 that was never our best selves. Those ideals don't work. You know, it's all about power or whatever. That is the suicidal turning away from our own story. Yeah, that's extremely well articulated. And, and in particular, I'd home in on your reference of King's speech, which for years, when I was a history professor, I would encourage students, especially those who, like me, were conservatives, mm -hmm. to see King's speech as not this revolutionary American politically liberal speech. Right liberal in the classical sense of the word, but truly conservative is part of our American canon, most importantly. But I think the way Kirk would understand it, too, maybe even Burke himself, was a continuation or a highlighting of the continuation of rights and wrongs in American right. society. And I think in your book, for our listeners who are really interested in that point, they would find wonderful analysis of that. And so I want to sort of riff off of that and 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 I'll keep my answer shorter. I oh, no, this is great. You're, this is wonderful. Uh, no, no, no problem there. I was going to emphasize one of the things that you emphasize, which is human flourishing, or at least what we would call human flourishing here at the foundation, meaning that, yes, economics are important. Right. Material things are important, but they're not the end unto, unto themselves. You know, in other words, we do the public policy work we do in trying to advance liberty and limit government and promote free enterprise, not necessarily because those are ends unto themselves, right. but because they enhance the dignity of the human person. That's why we believe in those things. And so that's my own long-winded way of, of setting up this question. You write about economics and human flourishing the following. Focusing on economics gives short shrift to another kind of entrepreneurialism that America unleashed upon the world more than any other nation. The entrepreneurialism of the self. Yeah. And I, I, I will say I am a little torn about the entrepreneurialism of the South. Sure, because it's am, a double-edged sword. As it you is. Say. It's very much a double-edged sword, and I'm a conservative, right? right. You know, in 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 forget ideology, in just sort of manner, right? Exactly. And so, on the one hand, I think entrepreneurialism of the self could go way too far, right? Um, uh, the I mean, I, I because I believe that this, this, there's this romantic spirit that sort of is. In constant tension with rational spirit that has been playing out in the West for 300 years, um, I, I I want equilibrium between them, and uh, um, so I could I could do with a country with fewer face tattoos. I'll just put it that way, right? I mean, I'm with the, you on that. There's a little too much sort of celebration of whatever makes you distinct, and and I I find a lot of of the sort of rebelliousness of people to be kind of canned and conformist. You know, they want to. They want to wear their nonconformity on their sleeves or on their face or whatever, but right, not and, and take a selfie, no and then take a, and then take a selfie <laughs> and sort of brag about it and they get their esteem from it. And I think some of those and then social media plays up a lot of that stuff. But 
No, but I agree with you entirely about human flourishing, and this is this is one of the things I think Arthur Brooks of the American Enterprise Institute should get considerable credit for about really pushing this as a conservative point. Yeah. And um, because you know, you know, what has two thumbs and loves capitalism? This guy, and I'm pointing my thumbs at myself <laughs> for podcast listeners. But um, we know that there are basically only about five things that make people happy. And when I, mean, when I say happy, I don't mean like giddy or joyful. I mean like having deep satisfaction um, in life and, and, and feel like they're living a positive life. And they are uh, you know, faith, family, friends, um, experiences. Uh, genes are a big one because some people are just born miserable bastards, right? And um, a big part of, of happiness it has a genetic component to it. Um, but the parts that make up the rest of it, that you know, lift the grade or lower the grade, are these other things. And the last one is earned success. And earned success can be about money. If you uh, really love your work and you feel like you're making a difference in the world and you take enormous pride in your profession or the business that you're building, um, you can get a sense of deep satisfaction from it. But you might not. Um, some people get their sense of earned success from being a soccer coach or being a good mom, stay-at-home mom or working mom, doesn't really matter. Some get it from some weird hobby. Some get it from being a Catholic priest or a nun or whatever. What earned success means is that, that, that feeling of being needed, that society needs you, and that there are people who would miss your absence, that would feel it in their hearts, and that you're making a unique contribution to the world. And the thing that, I, you know, that is so important to understand is that the federal government cannot give you earned success. It can, it can increase your net worth. It cannot increase your self-worth. And the place you get earned success in life is among the humans in real communities where you know their faces. You know, there's this thing called Dunbar's number. I mentioned it somewhere mm -hmm. in the book. There's a debate about what the actual number is of Dunbar's number. Is it 150 people? Is it 210 people? Who cares? The point is, is there's this um, outer limit of the number of people a human being can actually know as people. Anything beyond that, they sort of become abstractions because we evolved to live in these small groups. And you can't, at the end of the day, it's very difficult to feel needed on Facebook, right? It's very difficult to feel needed in a national political movement unless it's all about your ego and you're the leader of it. Where you feel needed in life is in your family, in your local community, where people know your name. Socialism works really well as long as you know everybody's name. The second people become numbers, it comes apart like wet toilet paper. And, um, and so this is one of the reasons why, you know, I, I love the work of TPPF and other places like it that, that are all about trying to empower people where they live rather than empower these abstractions that are a thousand miles away that can never really know you. That's right. And it, some, it, we don't talk a lot about policy, but that response makes me think about one of the problems with K through 12 education. Yeah. There's a long list there in spite of wonderful intentions of teachers and school leaders and maybe the opposite. I mean, they're humans after all. You right. talk a lot about human nature, but the point is that one of the changes we might make is just eliminating the behemoth size of schools yeah. for precisely the reason that you're talking about with Dunbar's number. Speaking of size, however, that makes me think of one of the problems you highlight, and that's the administrative state. Mm -hmm. And I want to read something, a selection from your book, if you don't mind, so sure. you get to listen to your own voice 
um, at least at least through my voice, which which might really be troubling. I love that you consider the minister of state your white whale and all of this. Yeah, you, 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 you bet. <laughs> it, 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 it's revealing about uh, how, how much of our work here at TPPF is is being spent right now trying to at least decrease the size of it. So this is what you write. I go on describing, I could go on describing the Byzantine bureaucracies within bureaucracies within bureaucracies that spiderweb across the nation. But again, no one disputes the growth in the size of the bureaucracy because it is indisputable. The point here is to see it for what it is, shorn of modern labels. It is a class, an aristocracy, a virtual tribe that protects its parasitic interests. Mm-hmm. That is, there are many money lines, I might say, in in the book. So congratulations on that. But in terms of seeing all of the wonderful narrative and historical threads you weave together in this book, this is one of them where several of those threads come together. Mm -hmm. So I thought our listeners might appreciate hearing from you, not me, about the importance of the administrative state as a problem to your thesis. Right. So uh, I am loath to advise people buy a book different than my own while I'm on my book tour. But Amy Chua has this book called Political Tribes that if people don't think they want to take my word for it, she has some similar arguments along these lines. Basically, human beings come with this, it's not just one program, it's a bunch of programs that teach us how to form coalitions, form teams, find allies. It is um, it's an evolutionary adaptation that you know allowed us to become the apex predators. And it can manifest itself in different forms in different places over time. And what the part of the problem is, is that we tend to give these coalitions that people form um, new names that have to do with their specific moment in history without recognizing that it's the same phenomenon just manifesting itself in different cultures in different places. And so I spend a lot of time in the book talking about how, you know, the, the Ottoman Empire, for example, understood the problem of human nature, right? And they understood that uh, human beings inherently want to favor their own family, right? Nepotism, there's never been a society in all of human history where people didn't give special preference to members of their own family. And so what the Ottoman Empire did, what the Chinese did with their bureaucracy, is they castrated their slaves, figuring, okay, well, now they're not going to have kids, so they'll only be loyal to the the, the Ottoman Empire, the, the Pasha, or to the Chinese emperor, and we can control them and all of the rest. And it turns out, no, that eventually the coalition instinct kicks in and they basically become um, an, a, a, a tribe, an aristocracy, a self-interested sort of artificial ethnicity where they protect themselves. The Praetorian Guard in Rome, time and again, sort of basically would hold the, uh, the job of Caesar up for bid where because and whoever would protect them the best and so we come to understand aristocracy we think of aristocracy or nobility as this stuff from from english history or from game of thrones and what we don't understand is that nobility is the same phenomenon originally aristocracy was not considered hereditary it only became hereditary when the aristocrats had the power to protect their interests, and the first thing they wanted to do was make sure that their rights and prerogatives got passed on to their kids. So they invented concepts like noble birth and noble bloodlines. And um, as I mentioned in our talk here at, at, uh, earlier today, you know, that kind of thing happens all over the place. Where you know, my favorite example is in certain parts of Mexico, 
Mexican teachers unions have a tradition where teaching jobs are heritable, that you can inherit a job teaching chemistry or, or math or whatever it is, um, because that is sort of hardwired into us to think that this is a property, that my status is a property I can bequeath to another generation. One of the most radical things the founding fathers did was get rid of titles of nobility. They had this idea that um, that we should have, you can't get rid of aristoc the natural tendency to have aristocracy, which just meant the best people, but we wanted to have it be merit-based, where you would have a natural aristocracy, where everyone had access to the system, complexity wasn't a subsidy, where everyone was going to have you know, the idea of merit. And one of the things that drives me crazy about, I know you want to get to the Ministry of State, but one of the things that drives me crazy about the rush to identity politics today is identity politics is a number four, another, another form of the natural impulse towards aristocracy. Because what identity politics says, just like notions of nobility, says that simply by accident of your birth, some people are more valuable or more deserving than other people. That, you know, that because you inherit this victim status that has, does not apply to you personally, but because your ancestors were slaves or because your ancestors were discriminated against, you know, historically discriminated against people, Victimhood is a now a new kind of like nobility in our culture. Mm -hmm. By the way, I was going to move from administrative state to identity politics. Okay. So please keep going. Okay, but, I, so, but I, in terms of the administrative state, what happened is just like the Janissaries under the Ottomans and the the the, the Praetorians under the Romans, um, uh, or the bureaucrats in, in the in the Chinese, the bureaucrats in the administrative state have rigged the system for their own benefit. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that perfect example, that understandable example for people is just simply the institution of tenure, right? I totally get the idea of tenure for um, uh, for university professors in certain moments. It's important, sure. you know, but like the idea, and, and I'm not saying I really defend it for universities all that much. I'm just saying I get the argument for it. I'm not sure I get the argument for tenure for kindergarten teachers, right? And... But what you get is, is this natural tendency to sort of circle the wagons to write the rules in favor of yourself. And uh, so in the, in the days before the um, Glorious Revolution, uh, a Republican political theorist named um, Harrington, uh, he called this priestcraft. And he was talking about how uh, you know, clergy would write the rules for how to define sin and proper behavior and the prerogatives of the church for their own benefit. And this is one of the great indictments that the French philosophers had for the Catholic Church was that they thought it was a racket. And I'm not trying to get into the theology, but... Um, this is a historical but fact. This is a historical yeah. matter. And, and the, there's no Catholic historian that would disagree that at times this was a problem. This, and this, one, this one doesn't disagree with you, by yeah, the way. Yeah, I mean, we get the word nepotism because... The appeal, the, the pull of human nature to sort of featherbed and protect yourself was corrupting a lot of priests, and or I should say archbishops and bishops and cardinals and popes. And the word nepotism comes from the Italian word nepos or nephos, which means nephew, where... Uh, which might also be translated Borgia, right? Yeah, it was basically <laughs> Borgia, right. Uh, and um, where these guys were basically giving all sorts of perks and powers to their quote-unquote nephews. Sometimes they were actually nephews, and sometimes they were their illegitimate children with their mistresses and whatnot. But that is all entirely natural. The great thing about the Catholic Church wasn't the hypocrisy of that moment, was that they recognized, because of the hypocrisy, how far short they were falling of their ideals. And so they created all of these rules to 
hold human nature at bay, including the rule about celibacy for, for priests. Is this whole idea that human nature can tempt you not to be giving good service to your highest principles and ideals. And so in the administrative state, you just have their own set of laws that only apply to bureaucrats, um, that you know, you, if you challenge all sorts of rulemaking bodies in the federal government, you don't get a lawyer. Um, the judge basically works for the administration, works for the government. Um, if the judge rules against the bureaucracy, it goes to another judge so they can reverse it, you know, and um, there are all sorts of these Byzantine rules that have been created to protect the perks and powers of the bureaucracy. And my biggest problem, though, isn't with the administrative state. It's with the politicians who let it happen. Sure. We're living in a moment that the founding fathers really couldn't have conceived of, where no one, where the executive branch and the legislative branch are not jealous guardians of their power. They always thought that the system would work because faction would be pitted against faction and no one would want to let go of their rights and privileges. Congress hands out their sole powers, Article I powers, to bureaucrats and judges in the executive branch all the time. And it is, a, it is an act of institutional cowardice that uh, does not get nearly the criticism it deserves. I mean, I, I understand the arguments for why presidents need to have all sorts of, you know, ability to have first strike and military powers and some flexibility, but the idea that there's, that the power to declare war is basically a dead letter for Congress is a scandal. It is. You know? It is. And, and regardless of party, yeah. regardless of ideology, regardless of time, it's a scandal. And it's more evidence that we are not grateful for the cultural heritage that, yeah. that we were blessed, we're fortunate to, to receive. A lot of, of examples we could cite there, but one of the, the issues I want to pivot to is as we get toward the end of our conversation is President Trump. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about President Trump in particular in reference to the administrative state because, as you now know, I'm hunting that white whale in the administrative state, and I'm very grateful to the administration for doing two things, highlighting the problem, and secondly, taking some real action. Yeah. It's, it's been limited because he's not been in office that long, but he's done more, I would argue, to address the problem than I have seen in my lifetime, including, in, including Reagan's administration, yeah, and, and I would give him a lot of credit. Having said all of that, you have been a fairly frequent constructive critic of the administration. And Some would say unconstructive at times, but anyway, yeah, I've been You know, it's it, this yeah. is Texas, so we try to be hospitable. <laughs> Fair enough. No, you're welcome to say what you'd like to say, but just wanted to frame it within the book Suicide of the West yeah. because you talk about President Trump in reference to the the problem as you see it of populism. Yeah. So First of all, you know, full disclosure, I was, I think you could fairly describe me as a never-Trumper during the election. And, um, and, but for me, my definition of never-Trump was I wasn't going to endorse him and I wasn't going to vote for him. And I always conceded that if the election came down to me, um, I would certainly vote for, and I had to vote for one of the two of them, I would vote for Trump over Hillary Clinton. And so I had sympathy for people who lived in some swing state. I've never lived anywhere where my vote wasn't canceled out at least nine to one. Um, people didn't like this answer because what they really wanted from me was to say things I didn't believe to be true. And that's not my job. And it turns out that a lot of people allegedly in my line of work think it is their job to say one thing when the camera's on and another thing when the camera's off and that kind of stuff. And we don't need to throw anybody under the bus right now. But um, And so 
But once he was elected, I said, well, I'm done with being a never-Trumper because it's a meaningless concept now that he's elected. He's got one president at a time. you got to give him a shot and all the rest. And this has sort of annoyed a really weird and diverse group of people, right? Because on the one hand, the left wants me to be a member of the resistance, right? And I have um, – I, I cannot stand the resistance stuff in part because the argument basically boils down to um, – Donald Trump put salt on his French fries. Hitler put salt on his French fries, right? You know? Wonderful logic. Yeah, I know. And it, it, look, the guy is not Hitler. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare, right? Um, and But beyond that, um, he's uh, – so I'm not a member of the resistance, and I really have a problem with some of my fellow conservatives. We don't, Again, don't need to get into names, but people who pay attention probably know what I'm talking about, who have abandoned all sorts of long-held views and positions – just because Trump endorses them. Like, I, the idea that somehow I'm all of a sudden going to be against moving the American embassy to Jerusalem because Trump is doing it seems asinine to me, you know, or being against tax cuts because Trump is cutting taxes seems asinine to me. I would like some more spending cuts, but that's a different issue. Um, the, and so I do think, though, that, that, and so the way I see Trump in the context of all of this is, yeah, he's getting a lot of really important stuff, or a lot of important stuff is being done on his watch. There is a debate among wonks in Washington about how much of this stuff is being done because of Trump and how much of it is being done despite of Trump. Because a lot of our guys, you know, think tank people, uh, movement conservative people, um, Trump's not paying attention. He's just saying, do your stuff. And, our, and a lot of our guys are just, are just running on open field, getting as much done as they possibly can while no one's, you know, minding the store. And that's, sure. that's great. You know, sure. I, I'm, you know, the stuff that's, I mean, I wish Scott Pruitt could be a more disciplined person, but a lot of the regulatory stuff he's doing is fantastic. Um, so my view on Trump's election is, is I think Trump is a symptom of our, of a lot of our problems or his election was. Um, and I make, I think he's making some of our problems worse. Um, but I'm not going to sort of denigrate the, the good public policy things that he's getting done right. simply because I have some sort of knee-jerk approach to these things. Um, but, you know, the way he talked about Hispanics, the way he's talked about immigrants at times, um, the way, uh, you know, he talks about his, the, the, the press, you know, the deep state, all of these kinds of things – as someone who may, has just written a book about how much rhetoric matters, about how, how you frame ideas, how much that stuff matters, um, I think Trump is doing a lot of long-term damage um, to how we think about politics, how we think about the presidency, um, and a, a sort of, sort of a, an intense and, and, and exclusive, Looking exclusively at the public policy victories and not looking at the broader context of, of the culture and, and, and how he conducts himself, I think is a mistake. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't welcome the public policy stuff, but um, um, he, you know, what, I try to, what I try to convey to people is that I don't think that Trumpism is a political or an ideological phenomenon. It's a psychological phenomenon, and the way he's conducting himself in office is fundamentally about him. And one of the things I truly worry about is what happens when the next Democrats in office. What if the Democrats elect a populist? How will they abuse the precedents that Donald Trump is setting up? I mean, the left is furious at Donald Trump for, in their eyes, 
abusing the precedents that Barack Obama set up, right? And I think, you know, like we're talking about this as he's just pulled out of the Iran deal, which I favor. You know, Barack Obama wanted to do everything by executive order because he didn't want to get buy-in from Congress or he knew he couldn't. And so Donald Trump is redoing all of that. Elizabeth Warren could do all sorts of things by executive order. And if we're in the position now where as conservatives we celebrate governing by executive order when a Republican does it, but we think it's terrible when a Democratic does it, we're moving further down the field towards a truly undemocratic, um, lawless way of of doing public policy. And I think that's a problem. Yeah, and I, I agree with you there entirely. And I think for our listeners, many of whom I, I, I know personally, of course, an increasing number I don't, which is a good thing. Yeah. That I, I and you know this too, because you're right in the middle of, of of that argument nationally. Regardless of where someone comes down on the question of Donald Trump as president of the United States, I think for those of us who describe ourselves as conservatives, that to the extent you make your argument about the long-term effects of Trump, the, the, the long-term run-up to Trump being elected and long-term effects, I think people, our listeners, would be really well advised to pay attention to that. In other words, I'm going to celebrate almost 100% of what he does in terms of public policy sure. and, and genuinely as a conservative. I get a but little presumably not on the trade stuff. No, not on the trade stuff. I was just about to say that, that in fact, one our senior economist, as you and I are sitting here recording this in Austin, Texas, is in the Metroplex of Texas today talking about the importance yeah. of NAFTA and free trade. So we are definitely not categorical one way or another because we care about policies and ideas. The point that I was going to drive to, and actually it, it sets up the, the last conversation thread we'll have, is that it's really important, in spite of whatever examples are out there, to have this discourse civilly. Yeah, I agree And that. that is an art that we have lost as Americans for a whole bunch of reasons. Right. And, and what, one of the many things I love about your book, Jonah, is that you really identify what those problems are and, and the sources of them. And so I want to close by inviting you to talk a little bit about what you see as one of the solutions. Because one of the things we try to do here is talk about next steps. Yeah. And that is mediating civil institutions. Right, right. So, um, you know, I'm in the middle of the book tour, so I feel like I've said everything 10,000 times, and I apologize if I have, but, um, you know, the big takeaway I have at the end of the book is about gratitude and how we should be grateful for the civilization and the country that we have. But something that sort of screams out in terms of a policy solution um, in the book is this idea of sending as much power as possible down to the most local level power possible, which is really something that, you know, Texas Public Policy Foundation is basically all about, right? And, and, it, and it should it should ping the ideological sweet tooth of most Texans, right? Because Texans, Texas is one of those places that kind of is its own country, you know, in some ways. Thanks for acknowledging yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Republic, I should say. And, um, uh, and so one of the reasons why I'm in favor of doing this, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why I'm in favor of doing it. Um, you have to, look, you, ha you can't have slavery again. You can't have Jim Crow. We fought a civil war. We amended the Constitution a bunch of times. Some things have to be settled dogma, right? So you have to protect civil rights for everybody. Um, but beyond that, uh, let people live the way they want to live. And one of the reasons why we have these problems of identity politics, why we have these problems of, of, of populism in this country, is that a lot of people, for good reasons, and I think for correct reasons and incorrect reasons, and we could spend a long time delineating which or which, but 
you can't dispute that lots and lots of Americans across the ideological spectrum, across the racial spectrum, feel like they don't have a lot of control over their own lives. And um, part of that comes from just the changing nature of capitalism and the market and technology. But a lot of it also comes from the fact that for, for various reasons, people think everything is decided in Washington. And one of the ironies is that it's, it's not always true. It's just, but but people, people think it, they don't engage at the local level. Precisely. Yeah, and if they actually showed up at the city council meeting, they could change things a lot, right? They actually showed up at school board meetings, they could change things a lot. Things that matter. Um, but because there's this perception that everything's in Washington, it becomes kind of a reality in a lot of ways. And so one of the advantages of setting as much power down to the most local level possible is that... Um, you know who the powers that be are. If something pisses you off, you know who to yell at. You know who to write a letter to. And odds are they're going to read it, right? You know, and um, you still have culture war problems, right? Because people have disagreements about how to live. Um, but one of the advantages is that the winners would have to look the losers in the eye. So many of the problems with our politics today stem from the fact that we have this sort of artificial tribalism where people, the other people are abstractions. Um, we retreat from the community of real people to Facebook and these kinds of things. We watch things on TV and the opposition live a thousand miles away. They're utterly abstract, therefore easy to demonize. You know, one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons, my wife got it blown up for me um, um, for a birthday present a few years ago, has two dogs sitting at a bar drinking martinis and one dog says to the other dog you know it's not it's not good enough that dogs succeed cats must also fail and so much of so our, appropriate yeah there's so much of our politics now i mean i find this from from friends of mine on the right who think that something donald trump does or something that they do or something that they say that all the justification you need for it is if it makes liberals upset, right? And I'm not afraid of making liberals upset. I've been in the business of this for 20 years. Um, I don't think in and of itself it's justification for anything. And I try to explain this to the college kids all the time is that by all means fight political correctness. But just because rudeness is not politically correct is not a justification for being rude. And, and so another problem, another thing that you get from sending as much power to the most local level possible is more people get to live the way they actually want to live. And I do this, I do it like on a grease board for college kids all the time where I give them this analogy. Imagine you have 10 dorms on a college campus and you have social policy about how to live on the dorm, right? You know, how late you can have music going, when you can have parties, can you do things in the hall, when are, when are quiet hours, all that kind of stuff. Now, if you have 10 dorms, one model of government is the benign dictatorship, where the pres college president issues one rule for everybody, right? Another model is um, absolute democracy, where, you know, and, and pure democracy is just the principle that says 51% of the people get to pee in the cornflakes of 49% of the people, right? So you can have all, you can form a coalition of students, of jocks and stoners and party guys and, uh, you know, whatever. And they get to 51% and they say we can party all the time, right? Or you can get a weird coalition of exchange students, Mennonites, I don't know, whatever, right? Study geeks. And they say quiet hours all the time. Or what you could do is you could have federalism 
which says that each dorm gets to take stock of the people who actually live in that dorm and decide how they want to live on their own terms, negotiated for themselves, and they can vote on it in that dorm. So some dorms will, will self-sort as party dorms, and some dorms will self-sort as, as basically virtual study halls. And you can do the math. More people get to live the way that they want to live. And if you happen to get stuck in a dorm or a town or a county where people have decided in a way that you just can't live with, there is this phenomenon that social scientists have documented. It's called moving, right? You can vote with your feet and move someplace where they ban alcohol or they don't ban alcohol or they legalize weed or they, you know, where they write into the San Francisco charter, let your freak flag fly, whatever it is, go where you want to live with people like you. Um, but at the same time, the people, there's a right in this country to live liberally, and there's a right in this country to live conservatively. And the way you sort all this out is by letting the actual human beings who actually care about the institutions and the families and the customs that are closest to the ground decide for themselves how to live. The idea that we should be imposing from Washington one norm on everybody is fundamentally anti-liberal, anti-freedom, um, and arouses in people profound resentment from the left and the right. It is the way to cut the Gordian knot. Just send it to the most local level possible. It won't solve everything. There will be mistakes made, but the mistakes will be contained. What an excellent fitting point on which to end our conversation. Jonah Goldberg, thanks for joining us on the Foundation Podcast. Great if, to be here. Thank you. Folks, if you have not yet picked up a copy of Jonah's book, Suicide of the West, please do so. You will enjoy it. You will be motivated. You will be challenged. And I think we will all be inspired to do what we need to do, which is to make sure that we are participating in those civic institutions that make government, especially at the federal level, at the national level, less important. Yeah. Thanks Small for joining part us. part of our lives. Yeah. Thank you, you very much. This is great. Thanks for listening to the Foundation Podcast, brought to you by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Please don't forget to subscribe.